welcome to When Belief Dies, a podcast honestly reflecting on faith, religion, and life. Hey, listen, I want to ask you to do two things. The first one is, would you go over to Apple Podcasts, search for When Belief Dies, and leave us a five-star rating and review? Every rating and review on Apple Podcasts helps to boost the visibility, and we want listeners like you to be able to find this show. The second thing is, would you consider supporting this show on Patreon? This show will always be an ad-free place, but your support on Patreon will enable us to do more and more over the coming years. So have a think, and if you can, support the show. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. Uh, my name's Sam, and today I'm joined by Paul. Paul, how's it going? It's going pretty well. And yourself? Yeah, yeah, doing well, thank you. We've... Um, We've got this weird tier system in the UK at the moment, so we keep jumping in and out of different tiers, and uh, we've just found out that we're going up to up to the next tier. So my wife's currently trying to Google what we are and aren't allowed to do in the UK. Uh, you're talking about COVID restrictions. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a nightmare. Well, I live in uh, I live in Canada's Texas, so we just do whatever we want. <laughs> Sounds beautiful. <laughs> no, it's not good. It's the cases are exploding here, but that's a different topic. Different topic. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So, Paul. Often people refer to you, obviously, as Paul Legere. You run a phenomenal YouTube channel, which essentially um, takes a look at the Christian claims um, and, uh, yeah, deals deals a heavy uh, heavy critique to them, which I always think is is, is beautifully done. Um, and I just thought it'd be absolutely fantastic to get you onto onto the podcast to to chat through a bit about your story, um, a bit about yeah why you are where you are, how long it's been since you kind of left left the faith, and also kind of probably jump into some of the apologetics, philosophical sort of stuff because there's, there's some things I've been wanting to ask you for a while. Um, oh, that's great! Yeah, love to love to chat about uh, these topics. Fascinate me, obviously, and that's why I dedicate so much of my hobby time to my channel. So I appreciate that. Awesome. Okay. Well, just to kick things off then, would you mind just giving us like a quick kind of summary about where you've come from, where you are now and kind of like, yeah, where, where, where you're going with your channel? Sure. Uh, the quick version, you know, I, I say I'm a former Christian. I know some people take exception to that, but that's how I describe myself. Uh, I was for most of my life, I believed firmly. I come from a Mennonite background, which is a, a very strict, a very literalist, very conservative branch of Christianity. Very much into the Bible being absolutely literally true. And if it's only 99% true, then none of it's true. So that's the kind of background I came from. I w- went to Bible college. I was in both youth ministry and music ministry for decades. And then right around 2015, I owned a comic book publishing company. And one of the graphic novels that I was writing involved uh, dinosaurs and I was a young earth creationist at the time. Everything that Ken Ham believes, I believed as shortly as five years ago. And my work wasn't meant to be for Christian audiences. It was meant for general audience. So I thought, well, I should maybe look up a few dinosaur details. Just make sure that it's you know palpable and reasonable to the main audience who thinks that they died a long time ago. And in that research, I started realizing that a lot of the stuff that was in there made sense. It actually, you know, the science actually rang true uh, from what little I was seeing. So I put that away and I suffered a little bit of time of this cognitive dissonance that maybe dinosaurs were old, some of that kind of stuff. So when I had a break in work between projects, I took some time. I took a few months actually and started looking at, I set out to prove that all my beliefs were true. And sadly, you know, I should guess I should keep this shorter. Uh, that all kind of fell apart. So the young earth part fell apart. Uh, I realized that evolution was in fact correct. 
um, and that a lot of the Big Bang cosmology and a lot of those things that as a young earth creationist, I just rejected outright were true. Now, I knew that didn't mean Christianity was false. I knew there were lots of Christians who accepted evolution and accepted a lot of the science. So I started figuring out what can I hold as true and started investigating the Bible and started investigating you know, some of the philosophical arguments, all those kind of things. And so one day I realized I just can't believe this anymore. Um, so that was kind of my, my journey was, was to set out to prove it true. I didn't want to sin. I wasn't out looking. I wasn't mad at God. There was no problems in my life I was trying to solve other than this intellectual curiosity. Um, and so from there, I realized that I was, I could call myself something like an atheist. I didn't even realize that atheists were a thing. I didn't know any atheists personally. Everyone in my life was a Christian. So I had this whole personal struggle and change as well, because when everyone in your life believes one way and you're suddenly the person who doesn't, that creates different things. Um, and so from there, I'm yada yadding over my personal changes in my, in my life. But um, one of the things I wanted to do was to talk to my children. I have three children who are all Christians and I guess I shouldn't, I, I, I also was diagnosed with a very rare aggressive cancer during this period of my life. And I wasn't certain how much longer I was going to be around to be able to talk to my children about these ideas. So because I had a background in film and animation and various things, an idea came to me that, well, if I put these things up on YouTube, even if I don't survive, these videos will. So I started this channel as messages to my Christian children, which is sort of why I speak in a certain way. I speak to the me that I was as best I can in that obviously when you're cursing and swearing, there's, there's a great place for mockery, there's a great place for all that stuff in the discourse. But my channel is to talk to the people who are still in it in a language I think that they will listen to. So that's kind of my journey. And in this last several years, I've had this great privilege to meet a lot of other YouTubers, meet a lot of uh, people, atheists who aren't even on YouTube, uh, just connect with this great community of non-believers and realize that life is very worth living even without a God in it. So, and then I've was asked to be on this great podcast and it came to this afternoon and I said, yes. So here we are. Oh, that's very kind of you. I think something I, I absolutely love about your channel is is the is the animation element to it. So I think a lot of people are used to kind of seeing two people in a room talking or someone just discussing something at a screen. But your channel brings kind of video clips and um, text, and you kind of create this animation of yourself and guests, and you kind of have that as 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 the presenter. And I think that's a really really clever idea. Well, it came. It was born out of necessity. Uh, the reality is that I was still pretty sick with cancer when I started my channel. And so I understand working in visual mediums that the way someone looks, the way they present themselves affects how people, rightly or wrongly, like, and it's sad that this is the case, but the way the idea is presented is almost as important as um, the message that's being presented. So I knew that my appearance wasn't going to be, you know, the way I wanted it to be. So I, I came up with that whole cartoon idea, something I could do. However, Looking back on it, knowing now what I know, I didn't realize I was ever going to have guests. I didn't realize that I was going to be animating new characters, you know, every week or two. I may not have started down the same path if I, in hindsight, but uh, it is fun. And it does, I think there is a bit of a branding there that helps. I think people can recognize instantly that that's apology, a thumbnail, or that's apology, a way of doing things. Like it or not, some of my detractors like Kent Hovind and William Lane Craig and 
Frank Turk, and some of those have, have attacked me for using the cartoon. Um, but, you know, that just kind of goes to show sometimes when that happens that they're not engaging the idea, they're engaging the presentation. So anyway, it is fun. I, I enjoy it. And uh, people really like my ham and egg theme song, which was a stroke of luck as well. I think that helped my channel propel discovering this old hundred year old campfire song that fit perfectly with Ken Ham. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is a lot of fun. Definitely. I, whenever it comes on, I'm always like, yes, this is going to be great. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think, I think, I think one of the, one of the, one of the nice things about the animation as well is, um, is for instance, I think you recently did one with uh, Pine Creek and as you were kind of presenting it, um, and an element of of it you 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 showed like three bits and there's a fourth bit to come in and um it dropped in and then pine creek's animation moved across and then came back in it's just a really nice way of um of yeah of kind of showing those things uh to 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 the audience it's just a really nice touch thank you so much for noticing sometimes i'll take 15 minutes to animate something and you know for my own personal satisfaction a little detail like that and i'm always pleased to hear someone else noticed as well it's never sure so thanks no worries yeah it's um it's, it's fantastic big thing that I find um, very powerful about your videos and even when you were kind of debating with Sean McDowell on the Un Unbelievable channel was the amount of knowledge that you hold um, or at least are able to articulately put across um, about the New Testament or the early kind of Christian manuscripts is 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 incredible especially when you say you, you kind of you weren't really up to date with all of this stuff five years ago you know you were you were believing the same things of Ken Ham and now all of a sudden you're able to you know be on an unbelievable um conversation talking about the martyrs like that's a really interesting kind of flip so how how did how did you go about kind of like building up your knowledge and kind of getting that sort of insight there's a couple of things one of course is that i because i spent decades accepting everything on authority when i made this switch as i said i spent several months um i really wanted to be right and i really wanted to go down every rabbit hole and, and the martyrdom was a was a big one for me that seemed really convincing um but the other flip side of that is while I was, I spent my life incredibly ignorant of science, even though I've spent my life as a computer programmer and, and working in animation, things like that, very ignorant of science, very ignorant of philosophy. Um, but the one thing I did for decades was my youth ministry involved memorizing scripture. So at one point I could have quoted most of the New Testament to you. Uh, it's something that you quickly lose. I, I, I couldn't do it as, as well any longer, but, um, so knowing the New Testament is the one area where I think I, I do, I am, I'm solid on. Uh, the, the New Testament is sort of my specialty. As I moved away in my videos, I started with science because that's the part where I felt the weakest. Um, and I feel like that's always a great way to tackle something. Start with the area you're weakest and work your way. Um, but yes, uh, so it's just a lot of study to have to convince myself that, um, Christianity wasn't true because obviously it's very important. If Christianity is true, it's important to know that. So it's my own brand of, I guess, uh, hypervigilism, uh, perhaps to a alarming degree. That's always been the state of my life is that once I'm into something, I'm all in. So, so I've learned it's, it's a little shocking. I think anyone who has a YouTube channel or a podcast, when you look at those first episodes you put out, this is just a truism. You're kind of, you quickly become embarrassed of the first work you put out to the extent where I think some of us, oh, the thing I did two weeks ago, I don't think that anymore. <laughs> but uh, 
no, it's so it's it's just a lot of process to learning and dedication to learning. And also, I, I still don't feel like I know everything. I'm very much in the camp that I could still be wrong about this. And if I am wrong, I want to know. So it's that dedication to now being correct and knowing that based on the things that I've learned, not because an authority figure told me that it was correct. So that's kind of where I'm at now. That's a really healthy place to be, I think. I, in in quite a lot of your kind of more apologetic videos, you you have this little kind of um, thing that jumps onto the screen with, with some music, which just says, um, for the Bible told me so. Right. Um, and I think that uh, yeah, and I think that's like a really, a really helpful way to kind of like highlight arguments where someone says something and then you actually go and look at the evidence and go, well, actually, it's just, you know, someone who's actually quoting the Bible maybe 200 years later. And this is just the Bible kind of circularly repeating itself. It's not actually someone giving you evidence or new facts or new figures or anything. I think that's that's something I think a lot of people miss unless they're actually willing to do that personal investigation. They'll just take it that someone who's got a microphone, has a PhD, who's able to lead a church, says something, or a, a big theologian says something, and actually they, they might not have done the research to actually go, well, what did the footnotes actually say and actually follow that all the way down and, and kind of maybe sometimes quite often the cases as your videos show circle back to it's just the fact that the bible says it is not the fact that we have any other information about it uh no i very much appreciate that you picked up on that nuance because some apologists hear that music which is from their childhood and they think that i'm just that anything that's in the bible apology is just dismissing it because it's in the bible well that's not the case at all where i use it is where we have a single source for a claim and that single source is the bible so I very much appreciate that you uh, you caught that that element of it because no, of course we don't reject things just because they're in the Bible. Uh, but what we want is external corroboration, or at least that's what I would like now. Yeah, I, I would love it honestly. I think so. I I stepped down from so I was I was an elder of a of a church plant here here in the UK, um, and been kind of been to Bible college and prepared for ministry my entire life and had this mantra that I was going to teach God's people His Word. That was the that was the big thing and. Um, it's just been really interesting kind of coming to this realization that I, I I don't believe those things, but I would absolutely love for there to be enough evidence to show that it's true. And I think, I think this is something I mentioned a lot in the podcast is people don't realize how often you, you really want to believe something and you don't decide that you're going to go down a path, but you end up going down a path, not from choice, but because that is just the path you started on. And actually you then look at these things and you realize that actually it's just the Bible for the Bible's sake, there's not actually anything else to show that Jesus rose from the dead or these these big things. Um, but there's so many books written about it and so much theology to get through. It mm -hmm. is, it's pretty intense. Yeah, you touched on a lot of things there. But yeah, obviously, one of the things that is frustrating is someone, it seems like there's zero barrier to becoming a Christian. You can become a Christian just with this childlike faith and, and you're accepted in the body, but you're not accepted to leave. You, you're not allowed to leave until you've read one more book. There's always one more book until you've read this, you can't say you don't believe. And it, I kind of laugh at that. It's, it's, it's a very double standard. Um, the other thing, I mean, obviously it sounds like we had a very similar journey and very much our lives would have both been easier or at least been on a familiar trajectory if it, if it had been true, if you could have accepted it. But one of the things that occurred to me early was that I'm not choosing what convinces me, which is a thing you just touched on. It's like, for example, I didn't want that dinosaur information about them dying 65 million years ago. I didn't want that to be true. But the facts, the brute facts overcame my bias against it. And so when people always, if they want to throw at me that I'm currently biased in one way or the other, yes, everyone is biased about something, but there's always a level of fact that will overcome any bias. So if you 
are presuming that your partner is faithful to you, you can be 100% certain of that. But if you walk into a room and discover they're not faithful to you, well, all of a sudden that's enough evidence to overcome the bias you had. And so where is that evidence for God that can overcome my bias? You would think a loving God would have such a thing in place. And of course, the follow-up to that is what about free will? And of course, the counter rebuttal to that is, well, what about the demons? What about uh, the devil? They are able to intellectually know for certain that there is a God, and yet they have the free will to not obey him. So I don't quite understand why, if the God of the Bible was true, he couldn't give us, at least give us intellectual uh, assent without messing with our need to worship him. That all seems wrong, and that was a long ramble, but uh, you, you prompted me down several topics that fascinate me, so sorry about that. No, it's all good. It's all good. It's very, very interesting. I was chatting to a friend recently and um, talking about the idea of heaven, actually, just t- touching on the on the on the free will element. And we we're saying how um, it, it's really weird because in, in heaven, obviously, we, we expect people to still have free will. We don't think we're going to become robots when, when we're in heaven. At least I say weak. like Christians don't expect they're going to become robots, um, but they also don't think they're going to be able to sin. Um, so they kind of seem to have enough evidence in heaven that God's real and is all powerful, so much so that 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 desire based nature to do things that would be you know quote unquote sin um within a christian eyes is, is is no longer there but yet god isn't able to do do that now i find that a really interesting thing as well and it's just you know that's probably just a a, a a tangent um but yeah yeah well it certainly seems like if that was a way that god could have made us then we could have skipped this whole earth experiment and a lot of pain and suffering would have been yeah. spared and he could have just not made those of us who weren't going to accept that would have been one way to do it. Um, or, you know, this whole appearance of age idea that Adam was created as a grown man and Eve was created as a grown woman, so there can be appearance of age. Well, just have everyone remember false memories. Have them remember Apologia, who didn't actually exist to suffer, you know, for all these, for all these reasons. Yes, it seems very contradictory, and I know contradictions aren't a great reason to reject Christianity, but there's certainly something that when you start to doubt eat at you and, and they become these intel- interesting ideas rather than heretical ideas as you and I probably thought a few years ago. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, I think I've been, um, I've obviously, obviously was a Christian. Then I cycle myself like a, um, an, an agnostic atheist. Um, and then I kind of view myself these days as more of a, um, of an agnostic in terms of the whole thing, like I, 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 I can rationale how there could be a a God that started things out, but I can't understand how Christianity on on the texts and the evidence that we have is is enough. Um, I think kind of listening and watching a lot of your videos, and, and I know you've got a podcast now, um, which is really interesting as well. I think that's kind of some of the old videos that I actually wasn't. I think I was still a Christian when they were coming out, so I wasn't even aware of those until recently. Perfect, which is great. Um, yeah. Um, and also kind of reading and listening to a lot of Bart Ehrman, I've come to this realization that, you know, the, I think, I think Bart Ehrman says like, it's around 3%, maybe 3.5% of people of the time that the New Testament was written that were um, literal, that they could actually kind of, um, sorry, had, had, had literacy skills, they could read and write. They were literate, um, right? Yeah. Yeah. Literate. Yeah. So I just find that like, we just, we never think about that. Like, I, you know, I've got a, I've got a five-year-old child and he's now reading kind of really, really small, like five-year-old child level books, but he's reading. And that's a, that's a basic thing that we expect people to have, but we, we consistently forget that back then it was very rare and very different. And I wonder if you can touch on that a little bit kind of about, about the situations and the people that actually had the new Testament. 
Sure. Uh, this goes in this idea that that I used to have, that the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses. And you kind of get yeah. this idea that, well, you know, the disciples were all good Jewish boys who probably learned to, you know, write in the synagogue early and those kind of things. And those things just don't bear themselves out. It was very much an oral culture, uh, which is another thing Christians hang their hat on. Maybe I'll cycle back to. But, you know, the one thing I don't think Christians think about a lot is the fact that these were written in Greek and everyone in the area would have been speaking Aramaic. And then, of course, they say, well, well, fishermen, fishermen would have, of course, known to speak Greek to sell their fish to Greek people, which is maybe true, maybe not. It's quite a claim. Uh, it doesn't seem like it, it's necessarily backed up, but it's hard to tell um, what people would have spoken or not spoken. But it was an oral culture. And so this was definitely, people went to the synagogue on a weekly basis to hear the word because they didn't necessarily have a copy of the word at home. They weren't reading the word. If there was a copy around, someone had to physically make that copy, make, literally copying letter for letter. So it's not like these manuscripts were all over the place. And so when you look at the New Testament, the fact that they're written not in the language of the, the disciples that have been speaking, so suddenly you have this very high barrier of could they have uh, read, read or written? And, and depending on the study you look at, maybe 10% could have read. Um, but reading and writing were very much different skills. Oh, and so, of course, and that's in the language you speak. So then you have to reduce that by who could have read and write in, in Greek. Then you reduce that by um, writing was a different compositional skills. Then you look at the Gospels and you say, well, this is not just someone who scratched out a shopping list. This is someone who wrote something with literary flourishes, at least to some extent, even though Mark isn't considered that sophisticated, it's still sophisticated enough that it's beyond just what you'd have picked up on the street or whatever. So this whole idea that any of the disciples were writing anything at all, and I don't believe that uh, anything in the New Testament was actually written by any of the 12. Uh, I think Paul wrote some of the things, but none of the 12 wrote anything. Basically, that whole idea is laughable. And that was actually one of the things that really helped the Bible fall apart for me was, wait, the people who I thought wrote this couldn't have written this. And fine, they could have used the scribe, fine, there's some other apologetic ways to do it. But I wasn't even taught from the pulpit that maybe some of these things weren't written by who we thought they were and what some of those problems were. And it kind of was one of those things that feeds into, you feel a little betrayed because my teachers, even at Bible college, weren't presenting me with even these alternate ideas of where could this maybe come from. So, which is one of the reasons I appreciate some apologists more than others. So some like Mike Lacona, um, at least will acknowledge the textual problems and attempt to come up with an answer to them as opposed to the more simplistic ones who just simply bang on the table and say, this was God's word. Uh, and I fear that apologists are actually probably driving more people away because if you're someone like me, once it slipped down from 100 to 99, well, 99 was enough for zero. It fell apart for me very quickly. So, um, you know, if, if you're a Christian educate yourself I very much. If Christianity is true, educating yourself on how this stuff came to be is only going to bolster everything. But if it's maybe not true, uh, wouldn't you want to know that as well? It's quite a well-known or at least a fairly well-recognized um I don't want to use the word fact, but kind of belief that, um, for instance, the Gospel of John, um, the story about um, the woman that's been caught in adultery, and they they all bring her to Jesus, and he's writing in in the um, in 
in the sand or on the ground or whatever mm. um like a, a lot of people are happy to say that that was an, an an addition to the gospel of john it was probably placed in the margin of a manuscript and at some point a scribe has then put that into into the gospel of john and then it's enough manuscripts for us all today to go well it's part of john um but actually was it part of the original gospel of john and even if that wasn't written by somebody who walked listened to heard jesus took their interpretation what he said and put it down onto paper like we then have another entire edition and it's a very famous story people use that story in preachers all the time that's right especially when they're trying to guess what jesus was writing down like no one knows stop trying to guess what you wrote down um so it's just i just find it fascinating that this like how do we know I just, we just i don't i guess we can't but we like i just wish we could and come back to a point before like i wish we could know for certain what is and is not true um that's part of the fun i guess and that's part of the journey yeah, um, that particular story, of course, it's every Jesus movie has to have that story in it because it's so well known and so well liked, so much so yeah. that even Passion of the Christ, which was just about him being brutalized, took time out to do a flashback to that story because that story is so key. And yet, it's weird because I memorized John. I had um, students memorize John many years afterwards, and I kind of ignored this thing that was right in my own Bible. It's like, the earliest and most reliable transcripts do not include this passage. And actually, it's funny because if you if you pull that passage out and you read it right from uh, read from John seven to where that passage starts to into John eight, it reads much better without that story in there. It was just interjected. Uh, and as you say, you know, you, then I've come to learn that of course there are other old manuscripts we have where that was inserted into Luke, like that story verbatim was inserted just into other books. So um, these are the kind of things that. If you want to believe it, you should at least be aware of and come to your own conclusions about how that happened, or at least reduce your confidence. If you can't reduce your confidence in some parts of the book, if you have to be at 100% for all of it, then that's a bit problematic. Um, much like the famous Jerusalem zombies in Matthew 27, where uh, for those not familiar with the story, after Jesus dies, it says that many saints rose from their grave, wandered into Jerusalem, and interacted with many people. It actually says with many people. However, uh, some apologists like Mike Lekonen, so this, well, the, this is the kind of hyperbolic language that was used in that time when someone very important died. So there are lots of people for whom uh, the sky grew black. Uh, even I think when Josephus himself died, I think it said that a you know, cow gave birth to a calf or something like that, which would be a surprise to Kent Hovind. The Bible, the way I like to treat it, as we were saying before with the For the Bible Tells Me So, it's not, I would agree, it's not all uniform. Parts of it are more likely true than others. But if you're treating it all with this divine level of, of um, that it all has to be literally true, you run into these kind of problems because why were there zombies? In, why did the people of the day, at least, you know, it doesn't matter if you believed in Jesus or not, sur surely you'd notice that there were dead people wandering around town. And it says there were lots of them. So um, these are the kind of problems that you run into trying to hold the Bible literally true. No, it's good. I think I think it's just uh, bouncing off each other now, which is really, really nice. Like it's kind of surreal. <laughs> um, cool. Okay. Um, so I guess an, another interesting thing I think people do with the Bible, which I thought would be good just to touch on very briefly, is for instance, even you know, it's kind of it's currently October. It's going to be November when this goes live. Um, it, it's coming up to Christmas, and what we tend to do with things like the Christmas narrative, obviously, there's there's only a narrative of Jesus' birth in um, in Matthew and in Luke, um, but we synergize them, and I think that's something that people don't really talk about very much is we we don't just focus on one of the narratives we tend to take them both kind of make them work together and then say that is the christmas story and actually that isn't 
that isn't a what the original author in, intended people to have no. and and b like that's just us trying to make the most sense out of something without being correct and, and true to the manuscript which is which is just bad it it's just bad interpretation and bad um bad honesty with what we're actually presented with in the gospels themselves and i wonder like do you have you have you kind of noticed this kind of like this this synergization is that a word people trying to synergize the other parts i think what a lot of christians and i did i very much did is i actually believed in a fifth gospel that doesn't exist which is a amalgamation of all the other four gospels where we've come up with reasons or other people before us have come up with reasons so we actually just get taught the harmonization and it wasn't actually until i started questioning these things that uh, i did what bart ehrman calls reading vertically where you set the passages the similar passages set them side by side and again i think i don't think these contradictions should necessarily shake anyone's faith i think there's lots of reasons why one eyewitness account could contradict another but i i think what it did demonstrate for myself was that we harmonize these things without even thinking about it, making a gospel that was as was never intended. So how many, how many men were at the tomb? Was it zero? Was it one? Was it two? Was it more? And, and we all go with the highest number. Oh, there was two. And so that, that means if, well, if Mark didn't mention them, that's fine. Cause you don't have to mention them. And if Matthew said there was one and Luke said there was two, I forget if it might be flipped. Um, you know, that's fine. Cause you don't mention everyone. So you just go with the highest highest number that's a has nothing to do with what these people were really writing do we not want to know that mark uh, wanted to say that jesus suffered mark's whole book if you read it he suffered you read the way luke copied mark jesus didn't suffer at all well why is that what is the theology we're doing there and so instead of coming up with ways of saying there's different reasons why they record jesus's last words as different things we just kind of put them in an arbitrary order and say that that's the way they witnessed it, whatever. Um, I think that even Christians are doing themselves a disservice by not then pulling out of it what the authors intended. So that's that's a weird way. Uh, you know, if you think of it in a way, like if you, if you said, well, Lord of the Rings has a different narrative. Peter Jackson smoothed out certain things to tell a story a certain way. For example, the love story between uh, Aragorn and Arwen, for example, that isn't in the books. Um, if you wanted to be a, a purist and say, well, I have to say that the book, the movies help tell the perfect story and the books tell a perfect story. You'd come up with this third weird story that neither were trying to tell. Uh, and that's what happens when you harmonize the gospels. You know, you talked about the Christmas story there and that creates one of my favorite contradictions, which is, uh, this so-called census that they supposedly did. You know, uh, Luke very specifically says that it was under the governor Crinius and, uh, Matthew says that it, you know, it was in the time of Herod. Well, those two didn't ever serve at the same time when we look at the historical records. So then you're creating this weird narrative where Crinius was governor multiple times, or Herod lived longer than he's supposed to have, or Jesus was, was born in some nebulous time that doesn't make sense. You know, again, the, these are, that's not the way these books were intended to be written. Uh, and I don't think these contradictions should shake your faith, but they are the kind of things we would expect to be right if it was a divine book. At least that's where I sit. Okay, and are there are there any other kind of like um, key contradictions for you that were really kind of um, game changers or are things that you now look back on and go, I can't believe I didn't notice that or I didn't at least look into that when I first heard it? 
um, contradiction wise, that's never, as I kind of have expressed for me, I know it shook people more, but the one that seemed irreconcilable as well was the whole, how did Judas die? In Acts, Judas doesn't kill himself. He, he, he ends up getting going to this field, falling headlong, and his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out, Acts 118. And, um, you know, that's different than in the Gospels where Judas hangs himself. He buys a field and literally hangs himself. And so there's this weird narrative, once you notice this, that people come up with, well, he hung himself, but then it broke, and then he fell on his head, and his body split open, where, you're, again, you're having to create this weird, super hyper scenario where all the details are true. Uh, and I guess the other one beyond that is the Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where Matthew and Luke both correctly quote Isaiah. Um, well, they all correctly quote Isaiah, where it's basically saying, um, they're saying it's fulfilled this prophecy where the Savior would come on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, two of the books... Matthew and Luke understood that in Hebrew poetry, it's common to repeat the subject of something when you're giving it more phrases. So you'd be saying, um, my dog is a good dog. My dog is a beagle. In English, that doesn't necessarily make sense. You wouldn't have had to include the subject twice, but in Hebrew, they do include the subject twice. But for some reason, Matthew decided to take that passage and say, oh, well, there's two donkeys mentioned here. And the way Luke and Mark wrote it, there's only one donkey. So how could this fulfill prophecy? So Matthew, for whatever reason, and we know what the reason is, because he thought the prophecy wasn't being fulfilled correctly, invented a second donkey for Jesus to ride on, which is just this ridiculous picture that you have to come up with it. Oh, Jesus is straddling a mother and a baby donkey for some reason, or he's got his feet up. I've seen pictures where he's got the feet up on the baby donkey and he's riding on the mother donkey. That for me was one of those ones that very much showed to me that these authors of these books were very much using the Old Testament as original source, just much like a sequel writer would do. So if you're writing John Wick 2, and John Wick 2 had a different writer than John Wick 1, the writer of John Wick 2 is going to look at the characters and the scenarios and make connections in his new story. I worked on at Lucasfilm on the Star Wars films, and I very much was involved with how we connected the dots in reverse. We did these prequel stories that... that you know, oh, we need somehow for Obi-Wan to get Anakin's lightsaber because in episode four, Obi-Wan gives the lightsaber back to Luke. So we need for that to happen. So we, we, we come up with a scenario to make that work. That's what the author of Matthew was doing. He created this double donkey scenario that is just sort of, to me, the, the flashing on this that they weren't looking to record history. They were looking to make a theological point that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. So those are some of the more interesting ones to me. Yeah, I, it'd be really interesting. I kind of want to want to touch on a few philosophical things, but we'll just leave them to the end and we'll see if there's enough time. I think it'd be really good. To... I got distracted by Star Wars, didn't you? Yeah, basically. I was like, he keeps mentioning these amazing <laughs> films. Like, what, what are all these references? This is incredible. Um, oh, gosh, yeah. Um, okay, no, I'm going to say no to that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going with the apologetics. I'm sorry. All right, sounds good. We'll keep going. Um, sounds good. So, um, yeah, so I think it'd be really interesting to have a chat about Paul. Um, obviously, it's quite well believed now that he, Paul wrote, I think, seven of the letters and the other, uh, however many, weren't written by him and lots of debate about that. And that, for me, has been quite a big thing because I think we use a lot of Paul's letters as as gospel. Like, I know we use that, we kind of throw, throw that term mm, around, right? We right. actually say, like, this is this is the foundation upon which Christianity began to be built. And Paul is like that kind of, Paul is like the replacement Judas and the one that actually took Christianity to the next level. That's what a lot of people would say. But then I think you were mentioning a, a, a while ago about how even 
in the story of Acts, when we have Paul there um, and and Paul himself and what he says, the, these things don't match up as well. And I just think it'd be really interesting. We don't have to necessarily look at how they match up, but but just kind of have have your like kind of five minute thought on on Paul and his kind of influence and the sort of kind of things that you see today now that, now that you're outside of the Christian faith. Sure. When I was a Christian, I actually had heard the argument idea that Christianity was really the religion of Paul, not the religion of Jesus. And I kind of took exception to that. Of course, I accepted all of the letters in the New Testament that were claimed to be written by Paul as Paul. In fact, I would have argued that Hebrews, which no one has no attributed writer, even that Hebrews was was written by Paul. And that's part of why it got in the canon, because that argument yeah. was made. Um, it became surprising to me to learn that really only seven of those letters, even if you look at people who taught at my Bible school, I actually came back and asked them, I'm like, how many of these letters do you think Paul wrote? Oh, well, seven of them are what we call undisputed. Um, and so, yeah, when you look at the Paul of, of the epistles of those seven undisputed, and you look at Acts, which was written by, people say it was written by a companion of Paul, but we don't, I don't accept that or know that. Um, it really seems like at various places, what we know is that Paul and Peter didn't agree on certain things. Um, so Galatians 2, Galatians 3, circumcision and, and what, how much you have to obey the law uh, are, are big ones. There are other points of contention. And what we see in Acts, one of the big things was a message that both Peter and Paul, it goes out of its way to say that Peter and Paul agreed on everything and it kept showing them harmonizing things and being a big happy family. And when, you, when I read Acts now, it really, it's almost like a thou doth protest too much scenario where the author of Acts is just going so far out of their way to brush over any differences that to me, it almost uh, seems like that author was trying to whitewash one side or the other. And because I don't think we actually have any authentic writings from Peter, we can never really know what extent Peter really believed things and didn't. Um, and so actually I do want to, that, that is on my checklist to do for next year is to uh, come up with a video that, that outlines various places where uh, Acts contradicts things that are in, in Paul's letters. Again, not because I think contradictions are, are the be all end all, but just to kind of show that um, as, as we were talking about here, it's, there's this fifth gospel. There's also this fifth, this other book of Acts that we all kind of accept. We, we, we pick and choose the parts that work together and accept those. Uh, and kind of ignore the parts where they don't. So yeah, and that has become tricky in my own theology because I've had to say, okay, these seven letters, I've become convinced that those are authentic writings of someone named Paul. And so people often accuse me, well, you just reject everything out of the Bible as you talked about before. No, no, I don't. I actually accept those things as authentic writings. Do I think that he, do I think they're all necessarily true? No, I think what they are is accurate reflections of his mind and his mindset and what he went through. Um, and so actually that's reasons why my theory about the resurrection and how the church came to be when I put forth my ideas, I have to include that Paul had a genuine experience. And I don't think that's even that controversial statement that a man like Paul could have a vision, what he calls a vision. He never says that it was physical only again, as you said, only in the acts, if we have to go jump to acts for the scales to fall off his eyes and for there to be bright lights and maybe someone's talking, maybe they're not depending on whether you're reading chapter nine or 22. Um, Paul had a genuine experience makes a lot of sense if you think about if you accept that he was going out there and persecuting fellow Jews for believing this certain thing if he was stepping over the line if he was killing them as as some people think that he was um that remorse we all we all can feel guilt over certain things and and if you it's easy to imagine that a, that a guy can have this vision of the person you're persecuting tell you to stop it 
And that's your own conscious, right? It's, it's your own conscious saying, oh, I, I need an out for doing this. And, and if, if your mind fabricated this vision saying, stop persecuting me, uh, I am really correct. To me, that explains a lot. I know for some people it doesn't, but you know, we, know about, we know a lot about trauma these days. And so um, I do think Paul's an authentic figure. And I think he's the only one who has books in the New Testament that we can have any kind of confidence of who wrote them. So people should take it seriously, I think, and not just dismiss them out of hand. And we do have to explain whether my explanation is a good one or not. We do have to explain how this gentleman named Paul came to be so sincere about it because he was also the one you spoke of earlier about my murder debate. He's the one we have best evidence that he was, he had a crummy life afterwards. He was put in prison a lot. He was beaten a lot. We think that Nero killed him. Uh, but even if he, even if it wasn't specifically Nero, we know he died around that time because that's when the writings, the authentic writings stopped. Um, if, if he was put to death as was claimed, he, he was sincere. We got that one guy <laughs> who was sincere. And I think we as atheists, if you're examining the claims of Christians, have to figure that out for yourself. That's really helpful. Yeah. Nero was a badass. AD 64, just, mm. yeah. Although it's interesting that, um, you know, as I've come to read, there's a lot of, so of course, Nero, the reason we know about these fires is because now we have um, Tacitus saying that Nero probably started started the fires himself and was looking to blame the Christians. Yeah. Um, it's now interesting, you know, I, I get Christians pushing back. Well, why do you accept Tacitus at his word, but you don't expect, you know, accept other people at their word. And it's interesting. I often say I don't. And it's actually in the last few years, I've come to realize that there are quite a few historians who thinks that think that Tacitus may have been putting out his own propaganda, uh, counter propaganda and should be believe Tacitus. And I'm like, yeah, I probably, I shouldn't accept Tacitus at his word, certainly on motivation, because motivation is something that's very hard to know. Um, so I like to think, and I hope that people will call me out on it, that I am treating these historical works from the first century with the same even hand. I'm not just accepting it because it agrees with my position. Uh, I'm I'm open to the evidence where, wherever it goes. And so maybe Nero wasn't persecuting the Houston because of this, just because Tacitus said so. I agree. All history is... Uh, held provisionally and open to new data. Agreed, yeah. That's a big thing with like stuff like Josephus. It's very um, very clear, I think a lot of people would say, that there's a lot of political um, kind of um, fingerprints amongst the works that we that we hold as, as the works of Josephus, just from who he was, the sort of place he lived in the time. It's, it's, it's interesting because we still use that as kind of like extra evidence, but even the extra evidence has been politicized and written with an agenda. Right. And for those who don't know really much about Josephus, which I didn't even just a few years ago, you know, what exactly what you're referring to is that Josephus was a Jew who lived in the Roman Empire. And uh, he, he lived through the war and was one of the few very literate Jews. And somehow he convinced the Roman Empire that they should allow him to write, allow him not only to live, but to work under their employ and write a history of the Jews on their dime. So you've got this Josephus who was getting paid by, this is almost like being a, a, a Democrat that, I guess I'll go with that, go with that example. Like the Republicans paying a Democrat to write the history of the Democrats. And it's this weird thing you'd have to do. You're balancing who's writing your paycheck versus what you personally believe and, and what your, and your own integrity of a historian. So that's the interesting position Josephus is in. And we always have to read, oh, was he perhaps writing this to make his own people look good? Was he perhaps writing this to keep his paycheck going? Or was this one of the things he found to be true? And that's just 
one of those complicated human nature things that will always be true. We all we'll all have to figure it out. And whoever's reading, whoever's listening to this podcast in the year forty two thirty one, will have to decide. You know, what, which of which of our statements were because of personal bias or factually true or all that kind of thing. We have, we're always interpreting. So yeah, Josephus is a very interesting figure on that front. Okay, cool. Um, and I guess it'd be, it'd be really interesting just to kind of touch on evolution um, just briefly, because I, I mean, for me, evolution was the big thing that kind of, I'm aware this is a massive sidestep, so apologies, um, out the blue. Oh, I'm, I'm all for it. Let's do it. Cool. Um, so evolution for me was a massive kind of, um, this doesn't actually add up to the God that I believe in. So for me, it wasn't necessarily that evolution happened. It was that if evolution did happen, which everyone believes it does, if you actually look at the evidence and there's lots of different versions of evidence, mm-hmm. um, is that if it did happen, it was an extremely meaningless, painful, death-orientated, horrific process that, that has brought about humans. And that seems very different to the kind of the God that the Bible portrays as all-loving, all-powerful, um, the sovereign creator of, of man in his divine image as kind of image bearers on earth like it just it just doesn't really match very well and i think for me that's a, that's a big big element but obviously for you with the kind of the young earth creationist which i never really was um that must have been such a um ground shaking change like how did you i guess i'm kind of now talking about your again back to your personal experience with with evolution this sort of stuff like if you were to talk to somebody in your shoes five years ago kind of how would you be helping them to begin to kind of grapple with these things i guess that depends on what, what my goal was to be if my goal was to just really provide them with truth i guess as opposed to being comforting because it was very as you said it was earth shattering it was not comforting at all and it was a very uncomfortable and it was a very uh shattering experience so yeah you know i know i'm aware that when i'm talking to our creationists i potentially I'm putting them through that same uh, difficult experience of intellectual honesty. Um, as you said, it sounded more like for you, uh, correct me if, if I'm mischaracterizing, but for you, this process of billions of years of, of life, uh, feeding on other life and pain and suffering, all that kind of stuff, falls more into the problem of evil camp for you in terms That's of it. Yeah. Uh, how, how it relates to God. But for me, the problem became, um, if this is literally true, and perhaps I can say, Perhaps I can say that the Old Testament in Genesis 1 to 11 is poetic and flowery language, and it's just the best way God could have explained science to the people who weren't scientific at the time. You could do that. But for me, both Paul, who we've spoken about already, the the Apostle Paul, and Jesus both affirmed that, you know, this idea that uh, Eve was created from Adam, and they affirmed this kind of young earth idea about it. And so the more shattering thing was Jesus believed this young earth thing. And I've yet to see anyone who convincingly can tell me that Jesus didn't believe this thing. Um, so if Jesus believed that, then he, and, and about Noah and the flood, they both affirm Noah and the flood as well. Um, and Moses, who probably wasn't a historical figure. So if, if Jesus believed these things, how could I, and that's where it just, it just like that was shattered. Now I looked at Peter ends. I looked at a lot of people that want to harmonize these things, but I just couldn't do it. It was like, Jesus believed this. So he can't have been God. I, I know a lot of people take it the different way, but if you're asking about my personal journey, that was the deal breaker, this, the single deal breaker. So um, how would I advise someone with that? I guess 
again, it has to be someone, I, I guess I would preface it by wanting to know whether people actually want to know the truth. So for, I, there are members of my family who have specifically told me that they don't want to talk to me about the subject anymore because they would prefer to hold on to their belief than to be correct about it. And so I think that's actually an important thing to ask someone. And you don't need to ridicule someone who would prefer a, a comfort because we all need comfort in one way or another. And so if they're going to be honest enough with me that this comfort brings them so much comfort that they don't want to let go of it, well, then who am I to be the jerk to strip it away? So I guess I would probably preface it. And this is where I'm at with my own kids, frankly. They're they're not ready to go into the weeds with me on this because they are finding it meets a certain need in their life. I wish it didn't. I wish no, I wish I'm, I call myself an anti-theist in that I think the world would be better. I think everyone should have the right to believe what they want to believe, but I feel like the world would be better if we stopped holding on to these ideas. But I understand that that's probably not in the next generation or even the generation after that. That's hundreds of years down the, down the line, if ever. So just prepping people to accept true ideas based on good epistemology. And that's where actually where I don't mind doing street epistemological kind of things, but with things that aren't about religion for people first. So if there's a claim in an ad, for example, it's an easy test to do. Do you think that's true? Why, why not? How would we find out if it's true? And, and do we even care? Um, if someone doesn't even want to look at the way we would evaluate an ad in a, a claim in a commercial, then this deeply held thing is probably not something they're willing to explore as well. So I kind of actually test the waters on that front as well, which is similar to how if people ask me advice about how to deal with family, because my family situation didn't start very good. Uh, I was outed not of my own accord. Um, pick a doctrine that that's really fringe that like isn't super important to the person you're talking to, but even just pick that doctrine like uh, pre-trib or or did did a third of the angels really leave with Satan? And when did that happen? Um, just probe at some of those very fringe things and say, well, maybe I don't believe that a third of the angels left with, with Satan and just see how that is met. And if the person you're talking to is going to flip out about something very fringe, um, that's maybe not the time to show them that, uh, that evolution is indeed true. And Jesus thought it wasn't, you know, that's probably not the right time for that. So I don't know if that's helpful, but doing this stuff gradually uh, is is the less painful way yeah no that's that's super helpful i think um i always kind of think back to kind of if i was back at that kind of day one stage again what would i be trying to tell myself um what what one nugget would i be saying read this watch this look at this think about this like what is that one thing and i, I still don't know to be honest with you what, what it is but um it's got to be something that i'd have i'd have said to myself so i need to keep working that one through yeah i think that if it was like could I send a tweet to my younger self? Yeah. I think it would, it would literally be don't accept things on authority. That would be my whole advice. It was just like, and hopefully my younger self would understand to mean that, Oh, I should, I should investigate everything myself as opposed to taking someone's word for it. I think that's a, a great start that we can all take because we all are lazy. Sometimes we, we, we think, Oh, there's a source that we trust. Uh, and may maybe for some people, that's my videos. Maybe they're watching my videos and say, oh, he seems like a nice, mild-mannered Canadian, and he seems like he really knows the Bible, so I'm just going to trust what he says about other things. Well, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about on something else. Like, uh, if, I, if I am your authority, also don't accept that. Uh, I think you probably probably agree that that's just, in general, a life mistake. Yeah, definitely. Definitely agree with that. That's really helpful. Um, 
And let me know in the comments where I'm wrong if you discover I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I think it'd be really interesting to kind of hear um, a little bit about the kind of philosophical elements that I mentioned um, off air just to start with. I think I, I've i noticed, I'll kind of frame it with me so you can kind of then bounce off that, is that um, since leaving Christianity, I've obviously dropped objective morality um, and then become very much subjective in believing that's where morality comes but then also now also kind of thinking it will if objective morality isn't true then i um even if my subjective morality i think something's right is it actually right or is it just me saying it's right and how do i actually how, how do we actually live in within society with subjective morality i know this is something you've been you've been looking at a little bit i know you sent a tweet out a little while ago talking about kind of morality and where it's placed and those sorts of things like just be great to hear where you are now with that sort of thought process right and Definitely the philosophy of morality is one of those areas where I think I've learned a lot, but I understand and I'm humble enough to know that um, people who would agree with me on a lot of things uh, and are much smarter than me have studied this for a long, long time still think that there's a lot of area for gray area and a lot of unresolved things. So I would never pretend or be so bold as to say that I've got it figured out. But where I think that I've come to and what has really helped me articulate what I observe in the world is that people indeed do have their own morality. Like that's people who insist that because we all agree, because many people agree that X is moral or immoral, um, we don't all agree. And, and I believed in the Romans, you know, one morality was written on our hearts, that God wrote this on our hearts and that we all should be programmed to come to the same conclusion if that is indeed correct. But I think we can observe and whether it's the fall or whether it's just the way humans are, that we don't agree. And so really what needs to be better explained is why don't we all agree on this versus, oh, there's a handful of things that we can come to. And so what helped me understand what I see in the world was, was Sam, not exactly Sam Harris, but he got me figuring out the language that because a lot of us look at this stuff as goals, whether they're, we intrinsically understand that they're goals or whether it's only when we, we peel back. So if I have certain goals for my life and for society and for the world, and someone else has their goals and things in society, where, where our goals overlap, we're going to agree on this morality. Um, and, and that, you know, okay, throw at me that, well, if, obviously Hitler had different goals, and so what you call his things wrong? It's like, well, because I, I call them wrong because they don't fit with my goals. And, and one of the great examples that Matt Dillhunter gives is the chess game. Well, if we agree that we want to win at chess and if we agree, which is an arbitrary thing, why should you have to agree to, that you want to win? You don't have to, but if you don't want to win, why are you playing chess? Uh, you know, it's one of those things. And, and are we going to, let's agree to the rules of chess. Well, those are indeed subjective and arbitrary. Why does the knight have to move diagonally and the rook have to move straight? Well, could it have been flipped? Of course it could have been flipped. You know, the, whoever came up with rules of chess, but because we're going to have a conversation, we're going to agree to some conventions. Okay. So now those conventions, the rules of chess are things that we're going to call our goal. And we're going to say objectively that, um, I can't move my knight randomly across the, not my knight, my, my king randomly across the board because that's, that's not part of the rules. And I've, I've, I've gone into the weeds now. All that to say, uh, maybe the race is a better example. If you want to win a race, you ought to run fast. If you, there are things if we describe as our goal, then you can objectively say that this is a better action than that one. Um, we as humans don't all have the exact same goals, but it's my argument and it's my 
what seems to make a lot of sense to me is that the so societies that have thrived because humans are social species are the ones that have, to some extent, fostered both cooperation, which really just means empathy. You, you understand that, oh, I don't like my stuff being stolen. So maybe you don't like your stuff being stolen either. And so maybe we'd all be better off if no one was stealing each other's stuff. You know, it would make me happy, make you happier. Um, but also there's a spectrum there. Obviously there's how much you want to protect yourself to survive. Like I, I'm going to steal bread if I need to, because uh, personal survival counts for that. Um, and it's a massive morality want to point to these, these gray areas, but, and say, well, it can't be just survival because, because of all these, you want to say that's wrong. And again, I've gone into the weeds, but you know, obviously long-term survivability has, has a role to play. But you also need short-term survivability. So every society has had their own particular balance of this. And I think what we've seen is that societies, for example, like Mongols, who were way on the one side of war, they, they did well for a while. But in those societies, you're, if that's what you're fostering, you don't have enough balance that everyone's actually going to work for each other. And those societies fall apart faster. And it's the ones that actually, we've learned the ones that have longer-term goals last longer, which in essence makes sense. And you don't need a god to explain any of that. Um, the, really the only time you need a God to step in on a subjective morality, a person feels something viscerally, but they have no point of that opinion has no point of commonality with the other person. So, uh, I know abortion is, is a typical one that gets brought up. You know, for example, if, uh, if someone feels that abortion is just wrong under every circumstances, every time ever. Uh, and if, if someone like me thinks that there are circumstances where it, it's, it's the lesser of two, two bad things, um, they want to just say, well, they want to do a tiebreaker to God because our goals kind of overlap. Well, that's not the way really we observe things working. You, if you want to convince me, your cosmic tiebreaker isn't going to convince me. You have to find a way to figure out what my goals are and explain to me why my opinion isn't in my own best interest. That's really the only way morality works uh, is my objective. So I'm still struggling through it. Those are some of my thoughts. I'm actually going to do a video next week, I think, with Greg Kokel, where he's talking. He's trying to say that uh, evolution doesn't explain some of these moral parts. But again, it often just goes to this. There's no cosmic tiebreaker if we have this subjective morality. I'm like, well, yeah, we actually have to have conversations with each other and come to common ground. And if we can't come to common ground, we're not going to agree anyway. Your, your cosmic tiebreaker doesn't solve anything. It just makes you feel better when you go home. Yeah, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I think there is that element. I think you do something up really well at the end there where you said um, it's just making you feel better. Like you having your beliefs and thinking they're objective isn't actually making your beliefs any different necessarily. It just means that you think there's some sort of kind of like link to this objective thing. Um, and I think the fact that even you yourself are going through these questions and asking these hard things and working things through um, just shows that these – that it isn't like you become an unbeliever and you pull out the unbeliever book and you've now got a new Bible to work from. Like, like these things take effort and time and conversations and tons of work to actually begin to unpick, especially the past. Like why did, why, why does I believe in object morality? Well, that's gone. Do I still believe in object morality? Not so sure. 
okay, the subject morality, how's that rooted? Is that based in just me? Or is that based in collective society? How do I get the most out of this? And then actually begin to have those conversations and, and inviting kind of Christians to speak in and even Muslims and people from other belief systems to go, why do you believe morality looks like this? And can you give me some kind of solid answers? And actually some of the things they say might actually back up this subjective view that actually it's for the communal good that we need to have these sorts of uh, agreements in place to be able to best, best help the world and not just humanity, but actually, you know, protect the planet from, you know, global warming which i believe is a real thing i know a lot of people don't but um yeah these sort of conversations are are essential essentially yeah and, and it's anytime a, a religious person can back their stuff up with well i believe that you know x y or z is wrong because reasons they're not actually appealing to objective morality any longer they're object they're going to reasons it seems to be isolated to these things that they can't articulate a good reason that they have to appeal to, to that uh, divine thing, which is, I find very fascinating. Um, it, it's not, it's not where they start, it, uh, but it's, it's where they finish when they leave in frustration. So anyway, I think we, we covered that. That's super good. So listen, I could chat about the Bible all day, I think, and um, I won't circle back to it, but I guess kind of just, just in closing, first of all, thank you so much for being willing to come on this podcast. I'm aware that I just DM'd you out the blue, someone you've never heard of before. So it's just a real honor that you'd be willing to even chat to me and have this conversation. So thank you. My pleasure. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I would be happy to uh, do it again sometime. Amazing. And yeah, I mean, so obviously people are going to want to find out about you and kind of check out on YouTube and stuff. What, what's the best way for people to be able to chat to you and find you and, and access your content? Sure. Uh, my channel name is Apologia, which is a play on uh, a Greek word, apologia, from 1 Peter 3, which is uh, to give a defense. And it's the word that the Christians use. So I thought, my name is Paul. I'm going to take a play on words. But as a result, it's difficult to spell because it's based on an old Greek word. So I will spell it for you here. It's P-A-U-L. O-G-I-A. Uh, and if you look for that on Twitter or on Facebook or on YouTube, you should be able to find me. And I produce, as I said, I produce content that's primarily geared toward former Christians or people who are still Christians and uh, addressing uh, someone who's in that kind of mindset. And hopefully it's a, it, it seems to be of a help for some people who have left as well to be able to sort of figure out where their own thoughts sit on some of these issues that fall out after you leave your faith and possibly if you're experiencing doubt steering. So hopefully you'll find me there. Check me out. And just to echo, I think it's, it's, it's essential um, consumption for people wanting to learn more about the Bible and belief systems and church history. And yeah, all these things that I think we just uh, take for granted sometimes it's, it's, it's essential to dive into that. So yeah, it's been massively beneficial to me, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate that. Yeah, and have a great day. You too, buddy. Thank you. Thanks. Well, there we go. And I hope you enjoyed that episode. This is just to say that you can find links to us on social media, Patreon, or the blog directly below. We would absolutely love to hear from you as your comments and suggestions help to drive this podcast forwards. So please reach out. And until next time, this is Sam signing off for When Belief Dies. Thank you.